1: Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's September 2020, and you're listening to Episode 201, which is a conversation about the work of Albert Camus. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Mitchell, who teaches English at Covenant Day School in North Carolina. He has a Ph.D. in Humanities from Faulkner University. Stephen wrote a feature article for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called The Sting of Death, Albert Camus, and the Fight for Life, and you can read it for free online at our website, equip.org. Stephen, it's good to have you on.
2: Thank you, Melanie. It's good to be here again.
1: Well, as I mentioned, Dr. Mitchell has written an article for us about Albert Camus, and he is a 20th century French author and he won the Nobel Prize in literature but some of our listeners might not be as familiar with his work so tell us a little bit more about albert camus
2: sure so as you said a 20th century writer a french writer a french algerian if we want to get specific born i believe around 1913 and grew up in algeria which was at the time a french colony in northern africa though he is of French descent and French citizenship. Grew up in considerable poverty, but was able to study philosophy at the University of Algier, Algeria, I guess it was, and ended up in France, involved in theater and you know writing himself, and was in France when the Nazis, the Germans, invaded France. He wanted to join the resistance, but uh, I think there were some medical reasons that he was unable to, and um, or to resist more, more actively. Anyway, he ended up part of the Underground Resistance specifically working for a kind of journal that the Underground Resistance published and produced called Combat. And then after the war, he became quite renowned for both his fiction and his philosophical works. Some of the famous ones are probably The Myth of Sisyphus, The Stranger, which is often um, a high school text if you're going to read Camus, The Rebel, which is a philosophical text, The Plague, which has recently become very popular given the pandemic we're in the midst of, The Fall, and some collections of short stories called Exile in the Kingdom. He also produced some plays, one of which The Possessed is based off of Dostoevsky's book that is sometimes translated The Possessed, other times translated Demons. Albert Canemou was actually quite a careful and close reader of Dostoevsky. In fact, I would say that nearly all of his work, all of his major works anyway, interact in some way with Dostoevsky's work. He was an atheist, though not, I guess what I would say is he was in no way combative in his atheism, though he was rigorous in it. He just, as he told a group of Catholic bishops once when he addressed them, he couldn't assert that their faith wasn't true, only that he was never able to believe it. But he nevertheless was a strong moralist, and so he was really interested in finding a way to kind of save human moral life, the moral dimensions of humanity, without recourse to, to God or to religion. And of course, part of you know the interest perennially around his work is whether or not he has done this successfully or not. Unfortunately, Camus died quite young, he died in a car accident, I think in the early 60s. I want to say it's around 1963. It might not have been that early. And he was unable to you know, continue writing. In fact, one of his novels, The First Man, was found in the wreckage. It was never completed. And so we don't know, of course, what he would have written or published or how his thought would have developed had he remained alive. But a fascinating writer and certainly someone that stimulate any any christian thinker who is concerned with questions of nihilism of morality of you know involvement with sort of the, the the political complexities of the world camus is an interesting voice always on those questions
1: you just mentioned that you think that camus should be of particular interest to christians mm-hmm. and so why should christians be interested in his work, especially Mm -hmm. as it relates to apologetics.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So any number of reasons here we could probably adduce. One, One thing that I think makes him important is his real desire to prevent unnecessary and brutal suffering in the world. He had seen what the ideologies both fascist ideologies like nazism and then the fascism of italy as well as the far left ideologies of soviet stalinism he'd seen the way those ended up justifying brutality and he saw the way even capitalist regimes would often justify brutality by propping up you know dictators around the world who would support you know policies that were favorable to them and and he was always bothered by that. He always felt that political ideologies that ended up justifying mass death of any kind were, by virtue of that, suspect, and that we needed to find a way around that. He's also interesting to Christians because of his critique of Christianity. You know, he stands in kind of that modernist tradition of, if there's an all-powerful God, and an all-loving god then the fact that there is suffering in the world is inexplicable and so he concluded that there must not be a god because there couldn't be one if he's not love he couldn't really be god and there is clearly suffering and and he couldn't be god if he's not omnipotent so you know that there is suffering in the world pretty much for camus proved that there was no god and this is just an important conversation that Christians interested in apologetics need to be conversant in because this is one of those points of sort of repeated contention against Christian belief. But I think one of the reasons I really think Camus is of interest and I hope I can make this make sense. I'm going to actually refer to c s. Lewis and to Milton here for a second to make it the point, but you know, William Blake said of John Milton that he was on the side of the devil in Paradise Lost. He was on the side of Satan. And this has been, again, one of those points of debate about Milton's Paradise Lost. And Lewis said about that, to that point in his book, a preface to Paradise Lost, essentially that while it may be possible that John Milton was sort of emotionally and psychologically on the side of The Satan character, theologically, he would have known he was wrong to be so, if that distinction could make sense. You know, that our minds and our hearts can sometimes be at odds with each other. And I think we can reverse that with Albert Camus, that while his mind was at odds with what he thought Christianity to be, his heart was, I think, in many ways, deeply in tune with much of the heart of Christianity, especially with this concern for the downtrodden and the suffering, you know, the people that suffer and are oppressed at this world. You know, he identified very deeply with the character of Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. In fact, his great work, The Rebel, is a book-length elucidation in many ways of the problems that Ivan Karamazov's position creates, his own rejection of God in that text. But for example, the theologian David Bentley Hart has argued of Ivan Karamazov that while he's intellectually at odds with Christianity, his heart is essentially in tune with it. And if one can argue that Ivan Karamazov's heart is in tune with Christianity, I think you could make the case that Albert Camus's heart is in tune with Christianity. And so it reminds us, too, that while we can have these deep and significant intellectual disagreements with, you know, people outside of our faith, we can find still grounds on which to sort of meet and know them. And and Camus, at one point, I, I referenced this earlier, made this deep appeal to this group of Catholic bishops. He said, you know... I know that you know what evil is and that you oppose it. And I know what evil is and how to oppose it. He says, I may not be able to end it in this world, but I know how to stop the suffering of one little child. And, and I know that if you will join me in this, that we could make a difference in this world. And of course, you know, the realities of that are going to be very complex. And certainly, you know, there can be practices and policies and Endeavors that you know a Christian may not be able to join. But but Camus reminds us that a person's moral center doesn't necessarily disappear just because they are unable or unwilling to accept the faith that we confess as true. And so I think he's of value to Christians in that way. I think if you can read him and absorb his spirit and not be sort of overcome by his arguments, that you come out a stronger Christian with a a deeper sense of the of the moral passion, I think, of many who who still find themselves unable to believe in the God that we know to be, you know, the redeemer of this world. So that's a long answer, but that's why I would say he's. He ought to be of interest to Christians, especially those interested in apologetics.
1: You were just mentioning that he made an appeal to some Roman Catholics. And are there other appeals that Camus made to Christians besides the one that you just mentioned?
2: Yeah. um, As far as direct public appeals, I'm not aware of any. But even often, his fictive work will honor the heart of Christian people. There's a character in The Plague, Dr. Ryu, who I believe in many ways expresses Camus' own sort of moral vision for facing and confronting suffering in the world. And there's a point in that novel where Ryu says Christians are better than their beliefs. And, of course, this is because he believes that, that Christian theology sort of ends up justifying kind of state oppression. And part of this is no doubt, you know, the intricate involvement of the Catholic Church and the and the French state in the in the history of France, which is certainly beyond my expertise to speak at length to. But but Ryu acknowledges that there is in the Christian faith this vein of opposition to oppression and suffering. And then there's just sort of this long and rather elaborate argumentation that you know, is intended to show how this too often turns into a kind of justification of suffering. There's a character in the plague by the name of Father Panalu, and he's a Jesuit. And he comes to some odd conclusions about himself, which is that he cannot seek medical help when he gets the plague, because if he's going to be true to his faith, he has to rely entirely on God. But at the same time, he works tirelessly to try to relieve the suffering of, you know, the many people in the town that is quarantined because the plague has taken over. So he knew there was this point of common ground. Of course, one can turn that and could argue that really, and I think you can make this argument, that Camus' own sort of moral sensibility probably owes more to Christianity than he even knew. So that's another place where you could say there's an appeal there. There are a few scholars, I don't know myself what the direct evidence for this is, but there are a few scholars that even suggest that just before his death, which was of course accidental, he was actually in conversation with a Catholic priest about the possibility of conversion. I have not been able to identify the direct evidence for that, but there are some scholars who uh, suggest that. So his work is passionately and deeply engaged with the suffering of the world and concerned to alleviate it without destroying the moral fiber of human beings. And that itself, even if we find ultimately his justifications or his, you know, his moral reasoning to be insufficient, and I think there's places where it clearly is, that desire is, I think, worth our attention should make its own appeal to Christians.
1: You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Mitchell, and he has written a feature article of the Christian Research Journal, and it's called The Sting of Death, Albert Camus, and the Fight for Life. You can read his article for free online at our website, equip.org. Well, we'd love it if you would partner with us Here at the Christian Research Journal, the best way you can do that is simply to tell a friend about this podcast or share any one of our episodes, including this one, on your social media feeds. But even better yet, at no cost to you, except for a little bit of your time, we really want to increase the amount of reviews and ratings that we have for our podcast, which you can easily review or rate us if you go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, but specifically at Apple. It helps more people find this podcast. So go over there, look up Postmodern Realities, and you can give us a start review, which is really quick. Or if you can think of a sentence about something you really enjoy about this podcast, if you can jot that down really quick, it helps other people find our content And another way that you can help us out is to simply give us a tip. Now, I know a full subscription of $33.50, which you can subscribe at our website, equip.org, is not in everyone's budget right now. But giving us a tip, maybe for the cost of what you used to spend on coffee, like $3 or $5 or $10, would really help us continue this podcast and bring you all of these articles that are online exclusives. Which at our website equip dot org what 's really neat about it is we are not under a paywall of any kind. When you give us a tip and you subscribe to the Christian Research Journal or do one of the other, you can help other people around the world find our content that's completely free. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of articles going back for many decades. It's all free for you to resource and be equipped in your faith. And the way you can tip us is very easily go to website, equip.org. And if you go to magazine, there's a drop down menu. You'll see Postmodern Realities Podcast. Click on that, and there's a landing page for every single one of our more than 200 episodes. And at the landing page, you will find the link where you can give us a tip. And thank you for all the ways that you support this podcast and our journal. I want to turn our attention now to existentialism, and I want to let our readers know that a couple of years ago, we published an article, which you can read free online at our website, equipped.org, called Jean Paul Sartre and the Resurgence of Existentialism. So, this is a subject that is still very relevant today. And that's one of the things that Camus was often labeled as, as an existentialist. And he actually rejected that term to describe himself and his philosophy. Instead, he talks about himself as an absurdist. And there is some of those kinds of themes in his novel that you referenced earlier, Les Changer. And I had to say that in French because I read it in French in college and I took seven years of French. So, hey, I get to use it one time. So what does Camus mean by calling himself an absurdist? And also, it seems, you know, to most people, to most lay folks, it seems that absurdism and existentialism they seem kind of similar. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us what the nuances are between those two schools of thought and why Camus would say that, no, I'm not really an existentialist, but more Mm -hmm. considering himself in the absurdist camp?
2: Mm -hmm. I'll start by speaking more precisely to absurdism. And I think this is important because I think absurdism is, as Camus defines it, it's one of those terms that he works hard to give a precise definition to. I think it really is the key to his work. So absurdism, it's probably most clearly laid out and worked out actually in his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. But in that work, he says, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but that the world is irrational. And he means by that, not that it lacks biological cause and effect, but that the world is morally irrational or meaningless. You cannot create a moral taxonomy if you would that explains why the things that happen in the world happen and this is an echo in some ways of perhaps even things you can see in the jewish poetic books the book of ecclesiastes you know which talks about rain falling on the just and the unjust and you know the righteous man following what is light and the foolish man following what is darkness and yet you know the same event happens to both of them you can see it in the book of job where there's this befuddlement, this puzzlement about why he is stricken. So for Camus, he says the world doesn't make sense. It's irrational. And of course, you know, again, Camus doesn't believe there's a God to give it order um, or to give it meaning. It's just there doing what it does. And then there's us human beings. And whether it makes sense for us to do this or not, We demand and we need a world that is rational. And by rational, again, he means one that meets our sense of justice, but we don't have it. So there's these two halves. And absurdity is not either one of those. Absurdity is not the irrational world. Instead, it's the conflict or the clash, or as he would use the word, the confrontation between human beings, these creatures that have a deep demand for justice in their hearts, and a world that perpetually, perennially, and it seems unremittingly thwarts that demand for justice. And so we don't fit this world that we're in. And that is the birth, if you would, in Camus' mind of absurdism. He says, this world I can feel, and I know that it exists. This heart within me Uh, or this world I can touch, and I know that it exists, this heart within me, and he's referring to that passion for justice and also for love. I can feel, he says, there ends all my knowledge, the rest is construction. And so absurdism is just the condition that we live in, a world that doesn't make sense, but a world in which we have to create some sort of structure of justice. And we can't give up either one, and if there's a difference between him and at least run-of-the-mill existentialism, I think it comes in to this sense that for Camus, there is an essence. There's, there's an attempt to know that human nature is a specific thing. Whereas, of course, Sartre is sort of more famous for this idea that we construct even human nature. There's another writer somewhat contemporary with Camus, uh, Robert Bolt, who was a playwright and actually a screenwriter. And in his preface to the play, A Man for All Seasons, he references Camus as a man trying to sort of articulate human nature without appeal to the divine. And, you know, Robert Bolt himself is somewhat suspicious that this will ever work. And I, in fact, I'm not sure that it ever did, or fairly certain that it didn't. But there's a difference. Like Camus was convinced there was an essence, a human nature that could not, and he felt should not be violated. And that's harder to find in existentialism. And part of that absurdism recognizes that, right? It's that loyalty to what I find within myself, um, that demand for justice, that demand for a world where love and justice and an affirmation of life can have a place. And that is a world for Camus that you have to perpetually fight for against the knowledge that you will not... Achieve it. There, there's the, the irony, if you would, and part of what makes it absurd as well. You won't succeed. But if you're going to be true to what you, a human being, is, and, and Camus thinks you can, can kind of see this within ourselves by a kind of awareness of our, of our inner selves, if you're going to remain loyal to that, um, then you will fight for or you will seek justice, even though you live in a world where it will never be fully realized.
1: Well, now I'd like to turn to talking about some of his specific works that you've already mentioned Mm -hmm. and some of their themes. And I think this way, as we think through some of the themes in these works, you know, our listeners and our readers of our journal might be interested in picking them up and thinking through those and how they could help develop them as apologists. So, you know, you mentioned a few times his book length essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, and in it, Camus talks about the relationship between suicide and atheism. So can Mm -hmm. you unpack that for Mm -hmm. us?
2: Sure. I'll try to be somewhat brief with this. So Camus kind of starts with a problem. And I guess this gets to another reason that I appreciate and he recognizes a problem. And that is, if life is meaningless, um, if there is no transcendent meaning to this life, why not just affirm anyone who wants to take their life? In other words, how do you make an argument against suicide if you are also saying that there's no inherent meaning to life? And so at the root of Camus' solution is, or his attempt at a solution, I actually think the myth of Sisyphus, I don't really think it succeeds, but it is still a brilliant attempt, is rooted in that very myth from the Greeks so Sisyphus, there's various versions of this, but essentially he is condemned in the underworld to roll a rock ceaselessly up this mountain, only to have it roll back down when he gets to the top. And this is kind of a perpetual, infinite punishment that he is given. And of course, for Camus, this is the image of the meaningless, meaningless effort, meaningless life, so on and so forth. And in a way, Sisyphus's effort comes for Camus to kind of represent any and every human life. So we have this burden in this world of making a life and trying to make a life that means something. So we roll this rock throughout our lives and then we reach the top or what would be the end of our lives. And of course, it's all gone. It rolls back down.
0: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.
2: Now, we don't get to repeat it necessarily, but it remains, if indeed, once we pass out of this life, we are just gone, if there's nothing else, which is what Camus thought, then whatever we achieve in this life is meaningless. And so why bother, right? Why bother to live a meaningless life? And Camus' response to that was found in the moment when Sisyphus, seeing the rock roll back down the mountain, decides nevertheless to go back down and push it up. And it's kind of, for Camus, this is probably one of those places where he gets closest to existentialism. The decision to push the rock up the mountain is the decision to give your life meaning, that all meaning resides within human effort and human decision. And so the very fact that there is within us a kind of desire to live, a desire to achieve these things, a desire to create a life of meaning, is for Camus reason enough to keep living sort of as long as you can. One of the things that he found remarkable about Sisyphus is that in at least one of the myths, Sisyphus returns to the upper world from the underworld for an errand, I think it's to punish his wife. And when he gets there, he decides, no, I'm staying because this place is beautiful. And he doesn't go back as he was supposed to do to the underworld. And so he is punished with this, this meaningless burden or this meaningless job, this meaningless effort that he's got to do. But if you choose to do it, you triumph over it through choosing to do it. And so Camus recognized that atheism, it stripped the world of transcendent meaning. And if he was going to affirm life anyway, and I guess this is one of the things that makes him appealing to me, is that he wants to affirm the goodness of this world. It is found in this human ability to exert oneself to achieve something. And in that effort, he says, uh, the struggle toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. So eloquent. I don't think it's sufficient. I don't think the struggle toward the heights is actually enough to fill a man's heart. But I really admire the effort that Camus recognizes deep within himself and he presumes in humanity in general this this demand for life. And if you recognize that and you attune yourself to that, that itself for him became reason enough to live into this world, you know, as as well and as long as you could to not commit suicide. Um, It wasn't so much that he made suicide forever illegitimate as that he thought he had found a reason to not give in to that impulse. And so that's, in a very short and very rough (laughs) summation, how he deals with suicide and atheism in the myth of Sisyphus.
1: Well, I want to move on to one of his most famous works, which is the novel Mm L'Échanger, and it addresses social and philosophical problems. And so what does he specifically address in this book?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. The Stranger in brief, I don't want to give too much away, but it is it is a story of a young man who gets caught in a senseless murder. And then that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is how French society reacts to him. So The Stranger takes up a number of things. This character, Mersault, is socially alienated. He lost his chance to finish university, and so he was sort of condemned to a kind of mundane and banal job, life as a clerk. And he has lost any ability to really feel, as he would put it, at least to feel emotion. And he tends to live by physical impulse, what, you know, what keeps him comfortable Is what he will do. There's two things that Camus said that relate to this book that are interesting. One is he remarked at one point that in French society, a man could be put to death for failing to cry at his mother's funeral. And I think what Camus was getting at with that phrase was his sense, anyway, that French society was too quick to, well, it was too quick with the death penalty, he felt that, but that it was it was too quick to demand conformity to a particular set of values that might have been worth criticizing. The second is that he said of his novel, The Stranger, that it was about, he called it the nakedness of man in the face of the absurd. And there's sort of two kinds of, I guess, nakednesses that I think get exposed in The Stranger. One is is the nakedness of Mersault, who seems to lack that, that second part of the absurd, That we were talking about earlier. So the world is irrational, but we demand that it be irrational, that it make moral sense. That seems to have been attenuated in Mersault. It seems to have sort of atrophied in him. The second is the rest of French and especially French Catholic society, as Camus presents it, is this insistence that we make sense of what happens in the world. And so The Stranger is a novel structured on the notion of absurdism. It is, in fact, divided into two parts. And you could argue, I think, persuasively that the first part presents the irrational world and the second part presents human beings in one way trying to make sense of that irrational world. So Mersault commits what is, I think, unarguably an irrational act of murder. There's no real motive to it, and I don't want to give much away for those who might read the text, but it will baffle you when it happens, and it stays perennially baffling throughout the text. And French Catholic society, the magistrate, the judge, the lawyers, the prosecutors, the priest, all of these characters who interact with Mersault after he commits the murder, they start to sort of construct these narratives that explain what he does. and. There's a certain comedy in that at one level, you can affirm them. He is a danger in some sense to their social values, to their moral values. But on the other hand, their explanations of why he does what he does never quite fits what actually happened, right? The incongruity between their demand for moral coherence and what actually happens, that incongruity is never overcome. And Merceau, he's a little more puzzling through this because he doesn't ever give in. He doesn't ever acknowledge, even that he did anything wrong, really. He remains a kind of stranger because he remains like the world that is morally incoherent. Though I think there are hints in the text that he does begin to recognize that the world is worth living in. And there's that maybe that that hint of change in him there in, in the second section, which maybe would, you know, if he had come to that earlier, would have prevented the murder that he committed. So the stranger, I don't think, it, it, it's not even intended to solve a problem. I think is it is intended to foreground a problem. That our political and social structures are problematic when in order to defend themselves, they begin to justify the taking of another life. This was for Camus always a problem. And second, that our political structures, and I mean that in the broadest sense, like the the religious dimension of them, the economic dimension of them, they never quite do justice to everybody. And for that reason, we should remain in sort of perpetual critique of them. There are some scholars of Camus that even consider him an anarchist. I'm not really quite certain what I think of that, though I can see the impulse there. And I think one thing that's interesting about that, I guess, is I think that there is a sense, especially for Christians right now, as our own nation is so viciously divided, and we have this unfortunate history of, I think, marrying ourselves too closely to one or other political ideology, that Camus reminds us that these these political ideologies need to remain forever under critique and under careful scrutiny. And of course, I think as Christians, our faith demands that of us as well. That because we wait for the kingdom of God, because you know we wait for the city of God, we have to always be careful of our allegiance to the city of man. And while Camus does not take that up from you know, a theological or a Christian perspective, that critical stance, I think, is valuable. And I think it comes out in The Stranger.
1: I want to move on to one of his works, his novel, The Plague, that you said has obviously seen some resurgence in this time. Um, Yeah. uh, Different epidemic than COVID-19. Sure. Much worse. um, Yes. But still, you know, with some themes that would be of interest in Mm -hmm. terms of mass death. I don't know if it's the same as, you know, he's depicting in the novel. Right. That I read The Plague. I, you talked about different ones you read in high school or college. I actually read La Tranger in college and The Plague in, in high school. Mm-hmm. What would be particularly interesting to Christians specifically, I think, during these times of mm-hmm. a pandemic to read this novel?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, to give a, a brief overview of the novel and why it's relevant The novel imagines an outbreak of plague in a particular city in North Africa, probably an Algerian city. It it doesn't get real precise. Uh, No, actually, it's Oran, now that I think about it. It's the date that's not real precise, but it's in the 1940s. And it's limited to this one city. The city gets quarantined. But within the city, the plague is just brutal, as the plague is. And it just runs rampant through the population. You know, and of course, people aren't just dying. That's a problem, a fundamental problem. But they're dying so brutally and in such, you know, immense numbers that they're having to dig mass graves and they're having to cremate bodies. It's important to note, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but that, you know, scholars are fairly well agreed that at at some level, the plague is a kind of symbolic exploration of Europe's response to nazism the, the plague as an image of that but but that's just one element of it dr ryu is the narrator and the main character and he you know he's tasked with with not just treating patients but of course running the entire public health apparatus to try to fight this plague and in that position he sees suffering really you know up close and He concludes that he can't make head or tail of whether there's a God or not. He thinks there's probably not one, but he knows that he can see suffering and he can fight it. You know, in his limited way, he can oppose it. He can do what he can to reduce the number of deaths and to alleviate or lessen the suffering of those who are stricken with this disease. There are several other characters that come into play. As I referenced earlier, Father Panalu, who is this Jesuit priest who is trying to interpret the meaning of the plague to the city. And I think he's interesting to Christians because I think he goes way too far in trying to sort of explain why the plague has happened to give it, you know, a kind of moral theological reason for it. And I think it's interesting because Michael S., I think it's Michael S. Buckley, Michael J. Buckley, um, I forget, (laughs) the theologian, in his book, The Origins of Modern Atheism, has argued that modern atheism is essentially a reaction to the shift into philosophy from theology. In other words, that Christians started to sort of argue and prove the existence of God based upon philosophical concepts rather than based upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Christ. And The reason I bring that up is that I I think that's sort of at the root of Camus' understanding of Christianity. He understands Christianity as a kind of abstract claim about an omnipotent God and an all-loving God, and the seeming incongruity of those two possibilities in the world that we live in. And Panalou, as he's presented by Camus, kind of only works in those terms. And so... I think one thing that Panelu reminds us of is the kind of impasse we get into as Christians if we don't keep the root of our faith focused on the incarnate Jesus Christ, that it is his entry into our suffering and you know, his resurrection and the promise of redemption that is the source of our hope. It is not in any abstract sense, though these things might be true and need to be asserted, the omnipotence of God and the abstract love of God. It's the very particular work of Jesus Christ that is the source of our hope. Father Panelu never touches on that, even though he is you know, a Jesuit priest. And so he ends up more or less just deciding that he can't fight the suffering himself. Like He can help others who are suffering, but he can't receive medical treatment himself, and he has to just let God do with him whatever it seems God wants to do with him. And I think the foolishness of that is obvious and apparent, even if Panelou seems heroic. And so, you know, I guess that's why he's of interest, again, might be a particular interest to Christians, you know, who like apologetics. I guess I'm getting a little off on why it's particularly relevant to this time. But I think the human compassion, the need to take precautions to actually be concerned with you know, the potential suffering of my fellow human beings, the anxiety and the fear that go into an epidemic or a pandemic. And I think all of those speak to the times that we are in. And I think the plague has the potential to make us reflect carefully on how we live during this time, you know, so that we act humanely and we don't contribute to more suffering. We don't contribute to more death, but we take what precautions are necessary to stand with Christ, I think, in solidarity with those who suffer. But the plague will also make us face the question head-on that there is horrific suffering in this world, and that horrific suffering is always going to make for some people, is going to make belief in God difficult or impossible. And it gives us an opportunity to face those arguments in their most articulate, in their most kind of artistically powerful form, and seek a response that is articulate, but also that is embodied in human. By that, I mean it's incarnate. It is a response that includes reaching down to those who suffer and acting on their behalf, not offering just words. So the plague, I think, for those reasons, is of interest always to Christians at this particular time because we are facing an an international pandemic of a virus that is certainly not nearly so devastating as the plague, but is nonetheless quite deadly to some people.
1: Well, the last novel of his that I want you to unpack for our listeners is The Fall, and it's a novel that I actually didn't read until I was an adult, although it's been, I think I read it in the 1990s, in that... Title Camus is employing Christian terminology to explore, you know, human mortality. Mm-hmm. But he, of course, he's using it in a different sense from the theological use uh, that Christians do, that comes from the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Mm-hmm. So, what does Albert Camus mean by yeah. the fall in the title of, of this book?
2: So, the fall is a confession of sorts of a man who had thought himself morally upright. In his mind, he had sort of all the right political philosophy, supported all the right movements, was just in all the right ways, was philanthropic. He was a lawyer who did pro bono work for those who were indigent or in danger of prolonged prison sentences. And he's given all that up. He's actually moved out of his native country, and he more or less sort of gives legal advice sort of on the sly from a bar is what he does now. Because while walking home one evening, he sees a lady on this bridge that he is crossing. He passes her, she seems distressed. And then as he's getting farther away from her, hears this cry and he hears a splash. And the novel never makes it any more precisely clear whether that indeed that woman did jump that night. But the man more or less believes that she did. And he did not turn back to help her, essentially because it was cold. It would have been uncomfortable. It would have required him to sort of um, it would have required something specific of him to sacrifice. And that's his fall. And for Camus I think the fall here essentially is that that moment when every human being, and Camus I think, really believed this, recognizes that in some way they are complicit in the suffering and the injustice of this world, that it's not avoidable. And the fall in that particular man's life, the particular character's life, is his realization that he is not morally superior. But then more broadly for Camus, it is kind of a necessary moral movement because It's necessary to recognize that none of us can quite be perfectly righteous, that in this world, we are in some way, by our participation in the political organizations, the political institutions that we just find ourselves birthed into, we are going to support some form of injustice. We are going to enable some kind of injustice, or we're going to refuse to act for justice, when we could, and and this, I think, is another part of what he's getting at in the fall. Is he's, you know, he's deeply concerned with the moral degradation of Europe in World War II, and the the willingness, you know, of so much of Europe to turn its back on on the Jews and on on many of these other nations that were suffering, and the willingness of countries even post World War II to ignore the plight of small nations and people groups and such that were being exploited or invaded or oppressed throughout the world. So it has that element of the Judeo-Christian notion of the fall in that it's universal, right? But it is a thing that happens to a person as a kind of, at least the opportunity for a moral turnaround. Um, I don't think it, it happens particularly well with the character in the story, but it pushes us to consider that, that we recognize our guilt our complicity in the injustices of this world and the implication thereafter, I think what Camus would have us draw is then our responsibility to do something about it, that you can't walk away from the suffering of distressed peoples. And that's my understanding of the fall.
1: So are there any other works by Camus that you think that Christians should put on the reading list?
2: Sure. Um, his work, The Rebel, is super important. I think one of his most interesting works, um, which is his critique of nihilism. He really believed that nihilism was at the root of the bloody violence of World War I and World War II, and he was looking for a way out of it. Um, And he thought this was another one of those attempts to find a sort of bedrock human value that could resist nihilism. I admire him for his candid recognition that nihilism was ultimately destructive of human life. I would say his collection of short stories, Exile in the Kingdom, I won't get into all the things that are in there, but it's just a fascinating read. And then actually, one of his works that I haven't yet read that I really want to is his dramatic Um, retelling of Dostoevsky's The Demons in the drama The Possessed. Um, Anything that deals with Dostoevsky, you know, I've said this many times, in my opinion, is of interest to Christians. So I would put that one on the list, and I actually hope to get to it soon because it's one of his major works that I haven't read.
1: Well, finally, I want to end with some fun rapid-fire questions for Stephen. So Stephen Lemon Bars or Carrot Cake?
2: Oh, man. Carrot Cake, for sure. Cream cheese frosting. Oh, yes. Yeah. Cream the cream cheese frosting, frosting on carrot cake. That's, that, that's the kicker.
1: What's your favorite color?
2: Probably blue is my favorite color.
1: Passenger or driver?
2: Oh, I've got to be the driver for sure. I hate sitting around and waiting for... I get nervous when other people drive. <laughs> Control issues, maybe.
1: Novels, poetry, or biographies?
2: Um, probably novels first, followed by poetry. Um, biographies, occasionally but they're definitely the third on that list.
1: Well, thanks, Stephen, for being guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast.
2: You're welcome, Melanie. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: You have been listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest has been Dr. Stephen Mitchell, who has talked to us about the work of Albert Camus, and he has written a feature article for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called The Sting of Death. Albert Camus, and The Fight for Life. And you can read it for free online at our website, Equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Anagraph, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities Podcast on iTunes, And please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast.